0: Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at sovereignhope.church. That's sovereignhope.church. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, for all the promises of God that find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. Lord, this morning, as we look at your word and what you expect of us, we thank you for what you have given to us, um, that as we just sang, that your expectations are not apart from your merit given to us by faith. So Jesus, make us ready and zealous to serve you, to love others, and to live for your glory. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So on Easter morning... Resurrection Sunday. Uh, what we're here celebrating today, we remember the concluding era of Jesus's first coming. But as we're continuing along in our study through the Book of Luke, uh, Jesus is actually spending his time preparing us for his second coming. Yes, the events of Easter weren't end; they were an end of our attempts to earn heaven by our own works. It was the end of the power of sin and death for all who believe in Jesus Christ. That's the code, um, belief in Jesus Christ. But it's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning of it. Even if you look at your Bible as a story, there's still ample pages left to come afterwards. And now this Jesus who has freed us from sin in his first coming is calling us to live in light of his glory in expectation of his second coming. And this period of waiting includes trials. Includes temptations, includes hardships, includes happy things. All these things are things which Jesus himself experienced in his life and ministry on earth. But all, as this waiting affects our anxieties and our emotions, Jesus in the book of Luke has been calling those who wait to find a safe and a secure place of comfort. And this we saw last week where Jesus ended and he said, Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things, all you hope for, will be added to you. This world is not the kingdom. If you have a hard time wrestling how difficult things happen in this world, here's the simple truth. It's not heaven. Those things shouldn't be here, and yet they are here. They're out of place. But as we live in this world, laboring for the one to come, Jesus has reminded that those who seek his kingdom, those who encounter all of the hardships and happiness this life has, in light of that kingdom, will not be disappointed. If our hope is in this world, we will exhaust ourselves trying to cling to things that bring us fleeting and momentary relief. But the good news for us this Resurrection Sunday is that Jesus provides the concrete hope of a kingdom where we can find our rest, our peace, and our fulfillment. The future we have there shapes how we live now. And that's the main point we're going to see today in Luke chapter 12. Our main point is just this. The future rewards of the gospel make God's people ready and zealous in the present time. The future rewards of the gospel make God's people ready and zealous in the present time. And Jesus is going to show us three uh, compelling motivations or postures in this text. First, he's going to talk with us about the father's pleasure and the effect it has on our affections. Then he's going to show us the son's service and the way that shapes our attitudes. And lastly, he's going to talk to us about the church's readiness as he guides our actions in these days. But before we begin, I want to point out the four wonderful, significant words of Jesus' text here. Did you notice that in Luke twelve thirty two? Jesus opens by saying, fear not, little flock. This is the only place in all of Scripture where this expression, little flock, is used. And it's used by Jesus describing his disciples. And I would argue that these four words, fear not, little flock, are four of the most powerful words that you could ever understand in Scripture and in your experience in the world. He calls his disciples, he calls those who follow him, little flock. Now, we might think, of flocks and sheep. And the first things that come to our mind are these pure, cute, white lambs. But if you've ever been around a lamb, you notice they don't at all match up with the storybook images we have in our face. They're kind of ugly. They're pretty stinky. They're really stupid. And if you ask anyone who's part of an agrarian culture, sheep don't stand as symbols of purity and adorability. They stand as symbols of simple helplessness. Sheep without a shepherd are literally dead meat. They're exposed to the world. They are completely dependent upon another. A flock without a shepherd is a dead flock exposed to the realities of the world. But here, this little flock has a shepherd who knows it, who loves it, who speaks to it, and as we saw last Friday, who lays down his life for it. And in this phrase, fear not, little flock, there are two important truths. The first is that we are sheep in need, none of us are able to save ourselves. None of us are able to solve our greatest problem. Your greatest problem is not the economy. It is not your family dynamics. It is not hoping to find on Master Sunday the perfect round of golf. Your greatest problem is that we are broken sinners and everything is laboring for our death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We are sheep, little sheep with a big problem. But secondly... This good shepherd is trustworthy over us in all of our needs. And this shepherd comes in to what would be a fearful existence. And he says, fear not. Here is the one who calls us not to fear because he and he alone is finally able to do something about it. And this is what Jesus is doing. This is the context of everything. He's coming to those who, if they really saw the dangers of life, would have no comfort. And he says, Fear not, little flock. He's not going to say, you are a big, mighty, strong grizzly bear. He's like, no, you're a sheep. But I, I am a strong shepherd. Trust in me. He's calling us to fearlessness, but we need to pay attention to where he's placing that. It's not in ourselves. It's not in our circumstances. But it's as faithfully loved sheep who understand their nature to the shepherd which is to say it is Christians who understand the significance of the gospel. If you're unfamiliar with that phrase gospel, then you should know it. It simply means good news. That's what the word means. And so what is the good news that stands behind the gospel? Well, we like to say it this way at Sovereign Hope. We like to say that the gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. The good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. That's the gospel, that Jesus as our shepherd did everything that we as helpless sheep were powerless to do in regards to our sin. And he did that so that we might be restored to the triune intimacy of the God of scripture. And that relationship we're restored to is actually where Jesus begins his message today. The good news of Christianity is not simply what we're saved from. But also what we're saved to. And we see this here in our first point as Jesus talks to us about the Father's pleasure. Would you read with me? It'll be on the screens, Luke twelve, thirty-two through thirty-four. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches. No moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you just think about your experience, things that cause you fear, is it not often motivated by a fear of loss? Fear of losing what we have? Fear of never actually getting what we hope to have? What then can better displace our sense of worldly fear or of worldly loss than the pleasure of a father who's promising here to give you something unlosable. And here we see the beautiful outer workings of the Trinity. As Christians, we believe that there is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. At Easter, we we, uh, celebrate the work of God the Son in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And here, Jesus the Son is calling us as only he can call us into an intimate, emotional relationship with the Father. How do we get to God the Father? How do we have peace with God the Father? Well, here we already see it. It's only through the words and work of faith in God the Son. It's Jesus who calls us into this relationship. And now, though living in a fearful world, now, though living as little flocks, we have the affirmation of God as Father. This is astounding. Not only are we sheep with a superabundant shepherd, but we are children with a hyper-generous father. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, says this about the idea of God as his father through Christ. He said, I myself have often found that when I can but say the word father, it does me more good than when I call God by any other scripture name. For by this one name, we are made to understand that all our mercies are the offspring of God and that we also that are called are children by his adoption. And that's, if you know anything about John Bunyan's life, this is a profound statement. He spent 12 years in prison for preaching of the gospel. and In the midst of the worldly affliction, this idea of God as father was what he says here, that no other word did as much good as this good. God as his father. I have four children, and I've noticed that when they're hurt, when they're sad, when they're anxious, when they're hungry, they often want their mom. But when they're scared, they want their dad. And while that might not be exclusively true in your experience, the Lord has so designed something innately protective about a father. That's why we know, without ever being taught, how perverted, abusive, and harmful fathers are. Because it flies in the face of what God has created to be true in a father, of what a father should be. Furthermore, even a stingy or a capricious father might step in and protect their child out of obligation. But did you notice how it speaks of God, our father, through Jesus Christ? God is here a generous and protective father who steps in on behalf of what? Not duty, but delight. It says, it is the pleasure of the Father to do this. God wants to give you the rich benefits of kingdom mercy in Jesus Christ. It is God's heartfelt zeal, his delight, his pleasure to do this. Now, remember what we read last week, for those of you who are with us, in verses 29 through 31. This is where Jesus concludes, right immediately before this. He says to us, do not seek what you are to drink or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So here's the beauty of the gospel. We are called to seek the kingdom of God. No one can come to Jesus for you. No one, no man, no woman, no politician can die the death your sin deserves. But we are called instead to seek his kingdom, to seek the Lord, to live our lives in accordance with Jesus's kingdom and Jesus's value, not this world. And we are to do this as work. But what is the father's response to those who seek him? His delight is to give it. His pleasure is to meet the meager works of faith and say, well done, good and faithful servant. The word translated here, good pleasure, is the exact same word that God uses in Matthew 3.17 when he speaks of Jesus, his son, and says, behold my son in whom I am well pleased. The same eternal pleasure God has in the son is the same delight in which he gives to his flock salvation and the optimistic zeal to live for his kingdom, even in this world. When we talk about the gospel, we are not talking about scraps that fall from the table of God. We're talking about the very heart of God himself, heart for his flock that they might come, believe, and be savingly satisfied in his son. What's your relationship to this God? How do you even consider the idea of salvation? If you ask my wife, there's this drama we have anytime we travel, and I am fully convinced that every TSA agent is there to keep me from going where I want to go. (laughs) I have to figure out a way to game the system so that they let me through. Is that perhaps how you view God? That in coming to him, you might get through. He might allow it, but he's not pleased. In fact, he would be more delighted perhaps to disbar you because of your brokenness, because of your sin, because of your little flockness. But here, for those who come through Jesus, God does not stand as a TSA agent of obje- uh, objectively uh, viewing us and considering us apart from his own affection. But instead, he sees in us what he sees in Christ, that same pleasure. And he says, come, I am pleased. I am pleased to give it to you. But I do want to make this very clear. God's pleasure is not up for debate. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. God is infinite, all powerful, and unfailing. He will be pleased. He will be pleased in the salvation of all who come to him through Jesus. Pleased to give them the kingdom, pleased to call them sons and daughters. No one is saved by anything other than the divinely personal and profound pleasure of God. You are not saved out of obligation. You are saved out of affection. But God will also be pleased to judge those who stand opposed to him. He will find pleasure in the weighty but perfect execution of justice towards those who rebel of his rule as king. And we might cringe at that. We don't like the idea of justice like this, but look at our world the last two weeks. Don't we cry for justice at school shootings? at war crimes, at extortion, at abuse. We cannot in our world cry for justice in a humanly court while we refuse to give God perfect justice in a divine court. He is right and pleased to do that. And you have no grounds for worldly justice if you withhold that from God in righteous justice. Why is this important? Here's why. God's pleasure Is not to be determined. But your pleasure is. Our pleasure is dependent upon our relationship to the God who does as he pleases. And this is where Jesus goes next in verses 33 through 34. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Because we have the pleasure of God in the kingdom, we can let go of the world in hopes of building greater and greater treasures with God. We can be generous to others because we cannot outgive by monetary value what we've been given by mercy. Before the missionary Jim Elliott was martyred in the jungles of Ecuador, he was famously quoted as he wrote in his journal one morning that he is no fool to give what he or to lose what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's calling on the very theme that Jesus is talking about here, which strikes us as silly because it seems like addition by subtraction. Jesus says, be generous with all the things of the world. Why? Do you notice there's a so that? There's a purpose here. So that we might find greater value in the things of heaven. He's after greater affection. Or to put it another way, Jesus is saying to all of you, he's saying, put all of your eggs, put all of your hope, put it all in this basket of eternity. Kids, how many of you in here are going to do Easter egg hunts today? Any of you? There's some in here. Great. And so you might go home. And your parents might give to you a a grocery sack if they're like me. Or they might give you this wonderfully ornate wicker basket. But context aside, if we just look at that basket and we look at that bag, that's not very exciting, is it? If you just had a bag in your hand and I say, you know what? That empty bag, I'm going to take it away from you. You'd probably say, okay, you can have it. But the only reason that container has any value is because of the potential of what it will go on to hold. That empty Albertson sack, as you go and you find eggs and you start to put it in the bag, each contribution to the bag, that bag becomes more and more valuable, not because of what it is, but because of what is inside. Many of us struggle to find treasure in heaven because we find ourselves hoarding the treasure's of earth. Our hearts actually look at all that is promised in heaven and they say, there's nothing in it for me. Instead, I'm going to cling to all these things that are here. For many of us, the call or idea of Christianity is dreadful because there's nothing in your heaven. But that is not a biblical heaven, my friends. Because here, Jesus tells us, here in this heaven is where all of your joy is safely found. By the end of the month, kids, your candy will be gone. That might be optimistic speaking of that as a parent by the end of the month give it some time it'll be gone by the time you die your investment accounts will mean little to you a few weeks ago residents of california went to silicon valley bank to withdraw funds that they had invested did you hear what happened they couldn't get them because the bank had failed They had stored up in this bank hoping to have what they saved for with interest and they went there one day and they couldn't have any of it. Why? Because it was invested in a corruptible bank. You might look at all God calls you to give up. This stunning call of generosity, of living for kingdom value instead of worldly value. You might find it completely foolish to value the saving of souls instead of salaries, serving instead of being served. God's glory over your glory. But the bank of this world will fail. That was not an aberration from the norm. That is the norm that everything will find. Whether through moths or thieves or through death itself, you will find all of your worldly treasures for lost. But here, Jesus says, is a bank and a treasure which will not fail. Put all of your eggs here. Even if it means selling the possessions of the world. Loose a stingy heart with the power of generosity. Taste and see. Men, have you ever spent so much time cooking a delicious steak and someone comes and just dumps steak sauce all over it? Yeah. Don't look at this like you don't know what's going on here. Jesus is saying, the steak is good. Trust the steak. It's perfect. You don't need anything else. You're not at a loss. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's wonderful. And you might say, but how do I know? Because it is not here. I cannot taste the steak. Brothers and sisters, we see here on Resurrection Sunday. This is the day where if... Everything is true in Christianity. This one thing must be true. And if this one thing is true, then everything is true. I was reading in 1 Corinthians 15 today before church. If Christianity were a Ponzi scheme made up by men, then Paul was the foolish and dumbest champion of it. Because you know what he said? He said, if you go, and if you find the bones of Jesus, if you find it was a scheme executed by ordinary men that Jesus rose from the dead, If you have any proof that Jesus did not come back to life by the power of God, then don't be a Christian. It's that simple. There is no hope in the gospel if Christ did not rise from the dead. Do you know that? Do you know how central this is to your faith? That is such a dumb thing to do unless it's true. Unless the tomb is really empty. And if the tomb is empty, none of God's promises are. Because Christ is our treasure. What's stored up for us in heaven, what we seek to add to there is not the trivial things of the world tainted by death, but Christ himself unstained in resurrection glory. Charles Spurgeon, the old British pastor, said it this way. He said, there will be little else we shall want of heaven besides Jesus Christ. He will be our bread, our food, our beauty, and our glorious dress. The atmosphere of heaven will be Christ. Everything in heaven will be Christ-like. Yes, Christ is the heaven of his people. This Resurrection Sunday is where the fear of loss is displaced by the delight of the Father because he has shown us his zeal to give us the kingdom by sending us his Son. Unstained by sin, incorruptible in death, risen in perfect glory, and ascended to eternal, untouchable righteousness in the kingdom forever. Do you want to avoid fear in this world, in a world which is truly fearful, in a world where moth and rust and thieves and death do destroy? Then place your hope and joy in the one Savior who beat it all and who offers you Himself. Find your treasure in Him, even if it means, in fact, to the end of losing your hope in worldly treasure here. But this Jesus who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, He's not gone forever. He's coming back. And even in this, for the Christian, there is more to be gained. And this is Jesus' second point. The service of the Son. And here we see Jesus speak to our attitudes. The service of the Son. Read with me, beginning in verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and will have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So Jesus says, on account of the father's pleasure to give you the kingdom, put all your eggs in that basket. Take God at his word. Trust it. Store up treasure there. But now Jesus says, on account of the son's return, have an attitude of constant readiness and vigilance to serve. Don't grow comfortable or apathetic while you wait. As Christians, we confess that Christ not only came to declare the gospel and to accomplish the gospel by dying in our place for the death our sins deserved, but he's coming back to bring us the kingdom, to establish his kingdom to remake the world, to wipe tears from the eyes, to eliminate sin and death forever. And his point here is in light of that, be ready. Be eager for it. Have you ever heard someone say, I'll be over to grab it soon? Is there a phrase we hate more than that? Because, I don't know, if you have friends like me, you realize we have varying differences of what the word soon means. And we're like, all right. Two minutes, and we'll go. Then two minutes comes, and five minutes comes, and you begin to like do this mental equation in your mind. Like, do I have time to to run to the grocery store? Can I go pick my kids up from school? Can I squeeze in a workout? And we start playing this game, and we don't like it. We don't like the indefinite, I'll be back soon. It's a difficult stage to manage. And for Christians, if you're a Christian, don't you know that waiting for Jesus is also a difficult stage? Where we have the same... Mental math of being like, well, can I do this and maybe get back in time? Our world hates waiting for things. Our mantra, now more than ever, is if we can't have it now, i will find something else. Since the 90s, the average age of first sexual encounter has decreased annually. We don't want to wait for it. Shipping times of the last decade have gone from 10-day shipping to 5-day shipping to 2-day shipping and now to same-day shipping. We don't want to wait for it. Colleges are spending thousands of dollars trying to figure out how to reconfigure their curriculum so that you need less credits to graduate with a degree. Why? Because we don't want to wait for it. So if everything in our natural world and fallen flesh wages war against waiting, then why in the world would a Christian willingly submit themselves to a Jesus who says, I'll be back soon? 2000 years ago by worldly standards waiting is wasting but by jesus it's willing work jesus gave us one reason already why we should wait and that's well this is the only one that won't fail go full bore at the world have everything and realize at the end it means nothing this is the one thing that will satisfy this is the one thing that will save and here he gives us another reason And that's because held out for you in the hope of heaven is a reward greater than anything you could ever imagine. Listen again to Jesus' parable in verses 36 through 38. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him and at once when he comes and knocks, or open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. So make no mistake, part of Jesus' parable here is meant to call us into constant readiness to serve Jesus at the drop of a hat. He paints a picture in this day. The bridal party would go and have this wedding feast, and it would last for an indefinite period of time. You don't know when it would get over. And the, the, the servants would be at the house, and they would be waiting in anticipation to not only serve their master, but to celebrate this new wedding with their master. And he says, you're to be ready to serve when I come back. Next week, please come join us. We're going to talk about what it actually looks like to live and act in a state of readiness. But there's a different theme Jesus has in this text, and he's drawing us not so much to what the servants will do when the master comes back, but what the master will do. And did you notice that in this text? Did you see what the master who is Jesus, did. You see the wonderful beauty held out for us when Christ returns. He changes his clothes and he begins to serve us. There's no greater scandal than this. You see, it's one thing if someone really noble and someone really heroic goes and gives up his life for a knucklehead and for a sinner because it's the right thing to do. But wouldn't you imagine in our world, if that war hero who sacrificed himself came back to life and walked into that town, wouldn't we think that it would be us who serve him? Wouldn't it be outrageous for the one who gave up so much to save those who were entirely unworthy to then return and serve us eternally? And yet this is what Jesus does. Such is the reward of heaven. Here is the heart of Jesus. He calls us to work. Waiting is work. Evangelism is work. Putting off sin is work. Coming to church is work. But why do we work? Because at the end of all things, Jesus Himself is coming to serve us. There's no comparison for this in our world. Because those who are most able to serve, those with the most power, the most wealth, the most resources, are often in our worldly economy the most served. And those who are least able, that is those with the least amount of power, the least amount of wealth, the least amount of influence, are often the most serving. But here, the most able servant is also the most willing servant. The one who created the world, the one who is God in the flesh, the one who is infinite and all-knowing, humbles himself and serves those who were sinners saved by his grace. He will wash our tears. He will meet our needs. He will rest our bodies. Why? Because it's the Father's good pleasure to give the kingdom. And it's the Son's joyful service to care for his flock when they have lived their lives in his service. In a world obsessed with leadership, shouldn't this picture of Christ, our leader, cause Christian leaders to be of stark contrast To our world. Shouldn't this picture of Christ, the conquering king, eternal and endless, but submitting himself to his little flock, shape even how we understand ideas of submission and service to others? Jesus calls us to serve now, but take note of even your Savior's delight. His delight, the same God who is in the heavens, Psalm 153, who does whatever he pleases, does not stoop and serve us out of obligation, but also out of joy. His delight is to do this. How much more should our readiness to serve, knowing that our reward is more than we can imagine, push us to joyful service? Service doesn't tarnish Jesus' joy in the Father. The Spirit's service of us is not a drain on his delight. Our ready service of Jesus, thinking of all of life through the lens of serving him, does not threaten your joy. It's actually the fulfillment of it. Trust the stake. Take him at his word. See, this is what Jesus has given us. For our good, rest will come. Rest at the hand of him who won it by his blood. Rest from the weight of sin. Rest from the burden of guilt. Rest from the work of constant readiness. But now is not the time for that kind of rest. And with the promise of the Father's pleasure and the assistance of the Son's service, we now look at our last point, the church's readiness and how it shapes our actions. God is pleased, the Son is serving, and the church is to be ready, verses 39 through 40. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, it's important just briefly to note here that the subject has changed. When Jesus begins to speak of the master of the house, it's a different Greek word. It's no longer Jesus, the master. He's talking to us. We are the masters, the stewards of the house, and he's speaking to our duty as attendants of what he has given to us. We'll talk more about that next week. But he's saying to abandon readiness to believe in him, to abandon readiness to serve and to worship him is to abandon the house to a thief. It's to leave all you hoped to have unguarded and ready to be plundered. We are instead to be ready at all times. We are to live in constant anticipation in a way that is observable in our actions. The world and her pleasures, the flesh and its weaknesses, the devil and all his cunning want nothing more than for you to forget these verses exist. They want you to become comfortable, and complacent and say, Jesus didn't mean what he said. He didn't really mean he's coming back. So look again to the world. Find the treasure in the world. Seek joy in the world. Find comfort in experiences because in that moment, you might find what you want for all eternity, even though how many moments have we consumed and still found ourselves wanting? But here, Jesus' kind affirmation to his flock is be ready, be vigilant, be vigilant, Be faithful. So what does this look like? I think Jesus is talking about our attitudes here, and in closing, there are three postures in this text that we can apply to our own hearts. The first posture is this. Be dressed for action. Be dressed for action. That's what Jesus opens this passage with. He says, be dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be always ready. Be a Boy Scout. That is to say, if we are always ready then we are never inconvenienced to do one of two things. We are never inconvenienced to serve Jesus. And we are never inconvenienced to love others. He says, stay dressed. And in that day, it's because the servants wore these long flowing robes. And so in order to serve, they would kind of bind it up sumo style so they can be ready and nimble, unencumbered. If you're a dad, you know something powerfully similar. Uh, I call it the dad hike. You know, the dad steps back and does this. Now nothing is impossible. We could do it all. We've become unencumbered for the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is calling us to live in. Right now. Live. Ready. This is not an interruption of your life. This is the sum of your life. This is what you're called to do. This is life itself. Do not be deceived into thinking your life can be summarized by any other pursuit. There is eternity to gain, souls to save, and worship to be given. For some of us, it looks like putting on more acts of worship and devotion. For some of us, in order to be dressed for action in service to God, we need to undress ourselves of worldly pleasures. We often don't have time for service because our schedules are so filled with sports and leisure and comfort. We don't have funds to give to missions because we enjoy the comforts those monies can buy us here on earth. But ready yourselves by offering all of what you have in ready and able service to Jesus. And know you leave nothing on the table. Be dressed for action. Assess your heart and your lives today and say, what is helping me and what is hindering me? Second, be eager in anticipation. Be eager in anticipation. 1 Thessalonians 5.2, Paul says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We must be ready because we do not know at what moment Jesus will come back. My wife often uh, tells my kids when I lied to her that morning and said I'd be home at this time that I would in fact be home at that time. And so she gets all the kids ready and they often go and they stand uh, at the window and my wife will send me pictures um, and I'll be like, I'm on my way. Um, But they're there and they're, they're staring out the window and they are straining their eyes. They are looking down the corner of the street, just waiting to see dad's car come around the window or come around the corner. And this is how Jesus is painting a picture of these men waiting for Jesus to come. They are staring at the door. Like, was that the knock? Was that that footsteps? Was he almost there? They're ready. They are able to go. They are ready to open the door and meet their master. We need that help. We need spiritual moms who say, dad's coming home soon. We need spiritual siblings and mentors who remind us that we should be found ready for Jesus' coming. We should be seeking it up. How do you hold that hope of readiness in front of you? Do you really believe that it could be now, before this sermon is over, that Jesus comes back and calls us to account? If he came right now, what would your hope be before that God? Would you be ready? How do you help others find that? How do you help others who are caught up in the entrapments of the world to show two things? One, that there's something more than that. But two, that even in that, everything that brings us joy in this world, everything that brings us love and peace, all of that is meant to point us to the ultimate peace and joy and satisfaction we have in the gospel. Living or leading people to enjoy the world in kingdom tension is part of our task as disciples. But we have something greater we hold up in anticipation. Colossians 3, 1-4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your eggs are in that basket. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a day to live for. What an investment to put our life into. Are you in anticipation for that? Are you expectant for that? And this is where we see our last application: that is to be zealous for our reward. Be zealous for our reward. We cannot be dressed for action. We cannot be eager in anticipation if we do not see the treasure of the reward we are given in the gospel. Our sin has separated us from everything we hope for. It has cut us off from God and made our fears the only reality of our life. But by grace, God sent his king out of his pleasure. He came and lived perfectly where we lived imperfectly. He died sacrificially in our place. He rose victoriously on account of our loss, and he will come back as the son of man who will one day establish his kingdom forever. One day we will no longer invest in what will come, but we will enjoy eternity by the merit of what Jesus has done himself. And that will be our life. One day the master who calls us today not to fear but to labor a little longer, to stay dressed a little longer, will dress himself in service of us. He will bind up our wounds and banish them forever. And when Jesus returns to serve his church, none of us will accept the Savior's service and say, yeah, you should serve me. This service does not lead to self-inflation or self-importance or the remotest sense of pride. But in that moment, when Christ serves you, you will be more aware of your little flockness and the surpassing beauty of him who stooped to serve you. With a humble wince, we shall accept his peace and care in light of the spectacular grace of the cross. And we will say with the old hymn, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued, amazing love. And can it be that you, my God, should die for me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, make us expectant for your glory. Make us ready to live for you by holding out the reward we have in heaven. For those who have not yet responded in faith, Lord, I pray that they repent and they come to you and confess that they need your sufficient shepherding touch. For those who are saved, Lord, I pray that we are struck by the reward in the gospel and that we will, with reckless abandon, consider all the treasures of this world as nothing compared to what is found in Christ. Lord, that our money bags would be full, not with things of this world, but of things that have passed through the veil of death by the merit of Christ. Give us a pallet for heaven by causing us to see this world for what it is in right tension using everything we have fully and heartily for your glory and for the love of others. We pray this in your name, amen.